Vance music director Debbie Briding, accompanying Vance choir member and church member Alan Klein. Alan and his dear wife Laura are new homeowners. Yes, it's, you finished, you signed the papers? Yep, there you go. New homeowners of a home in the Woodsdale neighborhood of Wheeling. Woohoo! Congratulations. Um, 
While I'm explaining what I'm going to do today, I'm going to ask Keith to pop ahead to the First Corinthians text, or the First Peter text. Um, today I'm going to do a little, something a little bit different in the sermon. Oftentimes you'll hear me talk directly about the text. I'll use the words of the text. Sometimes I'll even explain through the verses what it means. Um, I'm not going to do that today. What I'm going to do today is try to show you in this sermon what the text means. And you'll get to that in just a minute. So we're reading from, still in First Peter, a great text for this time in our world, um, when the church is undergoing great suffering, and the, and the author is telling the church to be patient and to live through its suffering in the love of Jesus. And at the third chapter, the 13th verse, we begin with this. Now, who will harm you if you are eager to do what is good? But even if you do suffer for doing what is right, you are blessed. Do not fear what they fear and do not be intimidated. But in your heart, sanctify Christ as Lord. Always be ready to make your defense to anyone who demands from you an accounting for the hope that is in you. Yet do it with gentleness and reverence. Keep your conscience clear, so that when you are maligned, those who, ab- who abuse you for your good conduct in Christ may be put to shame. For it is better to suffer for doing good, if suffering should be God's will, than to suffer for doing evil. For Christ also suffered for sins once for all, the righteous for the unrighteous, in order to bring you to God. He was put to death in the flesh, but made alive in the spirit, in which also he went and made a proclamation to the spirits in prison, who in former times did not obey, when God waited patiently in the days of Noah, during the building of the ark, in which a few, that is eight persons, were saved through water. And baptism, which is prefigured, now saves you, not as a removal of dirt from the body, but as an appeal to God for a good conscience through the resurrection of Jesus Christ, who has gone into heaven and is at the right hand of God, with angels, authorities, and powers made subject to him. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. So my friend Tim Seidler of the Experience Church um, sometimes preaches in bumper stickers. You know, nice little things that you could carry with you or put on the back of your car. And One of the things he says is, if your church is not changing you, you should be changing churches. Now, I, I find that interesting. I, I think there's more to it than that. I also would say, if your church isn't church changing you, you should be changing your church. Um, but along with this speech, he has another speech he gives about how, in the midst of our 31 flavor world, any people can ever sit dissatisfied in the midst of their congregation. We choose 
from a whole list of things in our world. 31 flavors of ice cream. A buffet filled farther than your eye can see. Have you ever walked into a bakery and said, everything looks so good, I don't know what to choose? That's his point about congregations today. You can look and see them as far as the eye can see. Why stay somewhere where you're miserable? But also, why stay somewhere that doesn't match what you believe theologically? Why stay somewhere where you don't fit? The scholarship for this comes from a man named Martin Marty. Martin Marty is a grand American sociologist and church historian who worked out of the University of Chicago. And Martin Marty has written an article which everybody should have taped on their refrigerator door. And what he says is, he's a great Lutheran man. His son pastors one of the greatest Lutheran churches biggest Lutheran churches in the country. And he says, for him, being Lutheran is a helpful way of being Christian. Now, for me, someone who grew up with Lutheran parents and a Presbyterian grandmother, so do the math, being Lutheran is not a helpful way of being Christian. I would go to the Lutheran church with my parents and they'd, they'd hand me this book and they'd flip back and forth from the pages and they'd know where to be and what to do and how to say it and, and I'd stand there dumbfounded. It was confusing. It was not helpful. For me, being Presbyterian is a helpful way of being Christian. For you, I know, being Catholic is a helpful way of being Christian. For Steve, even more so. (laughs) Debbie's husband is a very committed Catholic. And when I need information on Catholic theology, I send her home to ask him. Saying that, though, saying for me, being Presbyterian is a helpful way of being Christian does not mean that I'm saying that for someone else, being Lutheran or Catholic or any other faith tradition is not helpful for them. It's not an indictment on their theology. I like peanut butter and jelly. Jane likes jelly and peanut butter. We are different. But that doesn't mean she's wrong. We live in a society where we have forgotten all about the notion of civility. And we think that if I hold an opinion and you hold an opinion, that your opinion must be wrong. It doesn't work that way. Good people of good faith can hold different opinions and still be good people of good faith. 
And so today I want to talk a little bit about the traditions of communion and what different faith traditions believe. But understand that in doing that, I am not saying that any of those other traditions are wrong. I am saying that we are different and we hold different understandings. I will also say to you that when I get to explaining to you the reformed understanding of this, for me, that is a helpful way of being Christian. I hope it's helpful to you. So we start off at a time in the life of the institutional church when the only institutional church that existed was what we now call the Roman Catholic Church. And the Roman Catholic Church by the Middle Ages had very complete and extensive liturgies and understandings of sacraments. There are seven in the Roman Church, only two for us. And the Roman church still believes in something called transubstantiation. Okay? What transubstantiation is, is that they ring a bell. Do they still ring a bell? In most churches, they still ring a bell. They ring a bell, and what they believe is when the bell is rung, that the elements literally become the body and blood of Jesus. Now, that seems strange to us, perhaps, because when you look at them, there's still a piece of bread and a bit of wine. You say, how can that be Jesus? It's bread and wine. I can see it with my own eyes. The way that was explained to me once was, see this pulpit here? This is a pulpit. But the molecules that make this up are something different. And the molecules that make up the bread and wine are literally, for the Catholic tradition, the body and blood of Jesus. The most beautiful illustration of that that I know is from the movie Salvador. It's a movie about Oscar Romero, who was the Archbishop of El Salvador. He was chosen for that job because he seemed like a weak and mealy little man who wouldn't cause any trouble and would let the government run the church and not be at all an obstacle. He became a man of the people who lived for Jesus and the people of El Salvador and actually ultimately transformed that society. But there's a part in that movie where Romero is trying to come in to a church to serve communion to the people. And the people are standing outside protesting because soldiers are blocking the way with their guns, not allowing the people nor the priests to come in. And one of the soldiers insults him as a little weak man, and he knocks the hosts out of his hand, and they're scattered all over the ground. And with a soldier pointing a gun to his head, Romero gets on the ground, and he picks up every one of those hosts very carefully, puts them back in the container he was carrying 
them with. And at that moment, you realize, yes, that is really the body and blood of Christ that he is picking up because it is so precious it couldn't possibly lay on the ground to be trampled. At the end of that vignette ends with the soldier saying something. Romero says, okay, we'll leave. We're not going to enter. But know that this isn't over. And as he walks away, you realize who the moral agent really is in that story. It's not the government. It's not the soldiers. It's the mealy little priest with the body and blood of Christ in his hand. See how significant that host is to those people. Right? Now, in the, in, the, in, the, in, the, in the 1500s, we get a Reformation. Martin Luther, who never intended to start a new religion, but only really wanted to transform the Catholic Church and what it believed and how it operated, started to look at the sacrament of the Lord's Supper and said, Now, this actual body and blood of Christ stuff and ringing a bell, that doesn't seem quite right to me. And so he said, no, it's not when the bell is rung that the elements actually are transformed. The elements are transformed from the beginning. The elements are actually the body and blood of Christ all along. That is a theological term called consubstantiation, thank you, consubstantiation. And Luther thought that was kind of a mediating view. One of the younger reformers, they're called radical reformers, Zwingli, we're back to Zwingli again, Great musician Zwingli dismantled all the organs and pianos in his sanctuary because he was afraid music would become an idol to the people. Zwingli said, no, not, this, is not, this is not right, this transubstantiation, consubstantiation stuff. He said, Christ is present with us in the sacrament but not literally in his body and blood. Christ can't literally be two places at once. Christ is sitting eternally on the right hand of God the Father, so he can't be present in person at the sacrament. Zwingli said, no, instead, Christ is spiritually present in the sacrament. To me, that is a helpful way of being Christian. Our creeds and confessions say Christ is spiritually pre- Christ is present, spiritually present, but nonetheless present. So there's no thought in our tradition that because Christ is spiritually present, he is somehow only pre- spiritually present. It's a significant 
presence that moves among us. If any of you have ever been moved by the sacrament of Holy Communion, you know that Christ is here. So what we're working toward this month is an understanding of how those of us who are engaged in communion, particularly virtually, can do that and still find value in the sacrament. Well, here's the thing. Christ is spiritually present with us in the community. If you listened last week, I tried to make the argument that the community, if it's virtual, is nonetheless a community. And so, as we worship together as one people, as we engage in having the, the, the sacrament together, Christ is really spiritually present with us. That makes us a community of faith. It makes us people who are Christ followers. And it means that Christ is worshipped and adored at this table. And perhaps at your kitchen table. as long as we are bound together as one in love. Now, I have offered you some differences in our tradition and others. I hope I did it without insulting anyone else, but only to offer, as the scripture says, a defense of that which we believe done in gentleness and kindness.